these days have not caught God off guard. Who knows if we are at the beginning of some strange times, in the middle of some strange times, or on the tail end of some strange times. But regardless, God is in control. By his providence, he has led us to launch today a brand new sermon series. It's a sermon series on the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. I think it's appropriate because in those seven I am statements, Jesus lays clear claim of his identity. And if there's ever a time for us to remember and to know who Jesus is and what he is capable of, it's in these days. And so I think it's appropriate for us to begin this sermon series in John chapter 6. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 6, I want to begin reading at verse 35 and conclude at verse 51. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus not only always knew what to say, but he knew how to say it. Jesus was never at a loss for words. Jesus could pack more meaning in one off-the-cuff statement than you and I can say in an entire lifetime. Not only did Jesus know what to say and how to say it, 
But Jesus always knew who he was. He never suffered from an identity crisis. Jesus never had to find himself. Jesus never sold his wild oats. He never went searching for his identity. Jesus always knew who he was. On seven occasions, Jesus in John's gospel gives I am statements. He says quite clearly, I am the bread of life. He will say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. On seven occasions, he gives messianic metaphors. He is comparing himself to some very common everyday elements. He begins with something so fundamental and so foundational. He says on at least two occasions in our passage, I am the bread of life. It may sound subtle to us what Jesus is saying. In fact, it could just uh, cascade right over our heads. Oh, but the words of Jesus were as subtle as if a wrecking ball on a chain just came flying through this sanctuary. There was nothing subtle about it. Jesus was turning everything upside down. Jesus was proclaiming, I am the bread of life. He could have spoken the phrase I am in a couple of different ways in his earthly language. But he did something that nobody would do. <laughs> he he used God's vocabulary. He said, I am, which was very reminiscent of that ancient story tucked away in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro on the backside of Mount Horeb. It was then and there that Moses saw a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. The fact that a bush was on fire was not all that surprising, not for a seasoned shepherd like Moses well, Moses had seen brush fires before in the dry, arid condition of Israel. It was commonplace. It was normal. It was routine for a shrub to set ablaze, burn for a few seconds, and then die down. What was interesting about this blaze is that the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed, which meant the blaze kept going, and some would even say it got larger and larger. This captured the attention of Moses. He went over, and from that vantage point, God spoke to Moses through the burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. Moses, Moses, the Lord said, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. Moses obliged. He took off his sandals. He knew he was in the presence of God Almighty. And the Lord said to his servant, I have seen the misery of my people and I'm concerned about them. Let's just stop right there. I want you to know that God sees everything. God sees everything that goes on in this world. Nothing catches him off guard. We are not open theists. An open theist says that God is learning and evolving as he goes. You don't know the future, and an open theist would say God doesn't either. He's just kind of piecing it together as he goes. The problem is the Bible nowhere portrays God as an open theist. No, the Bible says that God knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. That's good news for Moses. It's also good news for us today. 
We don't know what the future holds with this coronavirus. We don't know what the future holds with anything, really. But yet God knows. And maybe somebody just needs to be reminded today that God knows everything. He knows the remedy before we even have a problem. He's already sent the solution before we even cry out to him. God knows everything. He says to Moses, I have seen the misery of my people. So don't ever think that somehow 2020's activity catches God off guard. God knows. He knew the coronavirus was going to happen before anybody could even speak the phrase coronavirus. God knows everything. I have seen the misery and I'm concerned about them. Oh, friend, don't ever think that human suffering leaves God unmoved. God cares. God cares about the suffering of people. God cares about sickness and tragedy. God cares. He says, I have seen it and I'm moved by it. When when we talk about our God to our neighbors and our friends, those that are fearful, those that are struggling, those that are trying to piece life together, when we communicate about our God, ours is a God that cares. In the midst of a pandemic, our God cares. I have seen the misery and I'm concerned about them, God said to Moses. And what God said to Moses, the Lord says to you today, I have seen the misery, not just of my people here in this nation, but the misery of my people throughout the entire world, and I am concerned about them. What a great message to be reminded of this morning, that in our day, in our chaos, in our helter-skelter kind of experience where we don't even know exactly what's going to fall out this week, we serve a God who knows everything exhaustively well and we serve a God who cares God is not unmoved by suffering he is not unmoved by tragedy he cares he is compassionate he is empathetic so to all of our neighbors and all of our friends where is God in all of this God is right here with us his promise is I will never leave you nor forsake you God has not abandoned his church God has not abandoned his world This still is my father's world. So Moses hears this, and it is some good news for Moses. God, I am glad that you see, and I'm glad that you care. But what does that have to do with me? The Lord said to Moses through the burning bush, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. I'm going to use you to do something that you think is insurmountable. Hey, friend, that could be a good word for you today. In these days ahead, God may use you in ways that you cannot even fathom. But what did Moses do? Moses gave some excuses. The first one is, I'm too old. And the age excuse has never worked with the Ancient of Days. Even though Moses was 80 years young, he said, I'm far too old to do this God-sized task that you want me to do. And that excuse didn't work. The next excuse was, I'm not very eloquent in speech. I've got a stuttering problem. And once again, that's not a good excuse to the one who spoke the world into existence. If God can speak the world into existence, certainly he can put a good word on your lips. So then Moses said, well, if you're not going to buy those excuses, what about this one? What if I go down there? And, and, and the people ask me, what is the name of the God that sent you to us? What am I supposed to say then? 
So God who speaks to me through a burning bush that's on fire but not being consumed, what is your name? Name communicated essence and character. So what is your name? And the Lord says, you tell them I am sent me to you. That's an ancient word that nobody in Judaism would speak. You and I would render it Yahweh. Uh, In your English translation in the Old Testament, many times that word is written in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's It's that unspoken word. It's that word that's reserved for God and God alone. It is divine vocabulary. It is Yahweh. You tell them I am sent me to you. And Moses says that's a great name. But what does that mean? Literally it means he is. And even that's a poor translation because it communicates the reality of the perpetual isness of God. It's the perpetual presence of God. That God always is. The God who was is. The God who is is. The God who will be is. He is. It's it's a perpetual isness of God. His presence is always there. He just simply is. That's terrible grammar, but it's really, really, really good theology. To know that God is. He's always in the moment. He he never turns his back. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's the greatest promise in all the Bible, that he'll never leave us, not in that moment for Moses, not in this moment for you. In the midst of when everybody else is losing their head, God keeps his. In the moment when, when everybody doesn't know what to do, God has a plan. Why? Because he is. He is. He is available. He is ready. He is healer. He is mighty, he is majestic, he is. It's just a simple way to say he's always there. It's perpetual isness of God. I am. That's a word, that's a phrase that nobody spoke until Jesus comes along. And Jesus says it routinely. I am. When Jesus said, I am, the religious leaders thought that he was hijacking divine rhetoric. Who does he think he is? He's the son of a carpenter. We know his daddy. We know his mama. We know the scandal of his origin. I mean, we we, we know all of his story, and yet he says, I am from the Father. I am from heaven. What's he saying? Well, Jesus was being quite clear. He's saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. It's not that I'm another God or a lesser God or kind of like God. I am God. So for Jesus to say, I am the bread of life, what does he mean by that? I mean, he could have said anything, right? He he chose to say, I am the bread of life. The Bible has two phenomenal bread stories. There may be more, but there are at least two awesome ones. One's in the Old Testament, the other's in the New Testament. The one in the Old Testament is given for us in in, in Exodus chapter 16, that after Moses successfully and convincingly went down to Pharaoh, said, let God's people go, and eventually Pharaoh let them go, and and, and Moses led uh, the many people of God through the Red Sea into the desert. It didn't take very long for the people's mind to be seared by the Palestinian heat. They said to Moses, we don't have anything to eat. Why don't you just take us back? Because at least when we were in Egypt, we had food to spare. 
And Moses says, you've got to be kidding me. What's wrong with you people? But Moses, being the mediator between the people and God, he goes and prays, God, please, will you provide something for them to eat? And the next morning they woke up, and there was a flaky-type substance on the dew of the ground. And it was edible. People walked out, and they said, what is it? And Moses said, exactly. Because the word manna means, what is it? So they walked around and said, what is it? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Well, what is it? Exactly. You got it. Well, what is it? It's manna. It means, what is it? It's, it's fallen down from heaven. It's God's version of frosted flakes right there on the ground every single morning. And for 40 years, God fed them frosted flakes in the morning and fried quail in the evening. Had to be fried because we're Baptist, right? God sustained them. God sustained them. In the highs and the lows, in the good times and the bad, God sustained his people. When Jesus speaks the phrase, I am the bread of life, he's saying something about his ability to sustain us. He sustains us, church, in the good times and the bad. When we know what's coming down the pike and when we don't know what's coming down the pike, he sustains us. Bread is so fundamental and foundational to the diet of Palestine and really to anybody's diet. I mean, I know some of you have given up bread. You're on one of those special diets and you give up all the carbs and everything, but not very many of you apparently went to Publix or Walmart because the last couple of days I can't find any bread on the shelf. (laughs) But for most of us, the bread is a staple to the diet. It's fundamental, it's foundational. And Jesus is saying, I am so fundamental to your sustenance. I will sustain you when you know what's coming and when you don't. I'll sustain you. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. One of the great bread stories is that Old Testament story of God providing manna in the desert. But the New Testament story, that miraculous event is given to us in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, outside of the resurrection of Jesus, it is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. There are some miracles that Jesus performed that we will read about in one gospel, maybe two. A few of them happen and are recorded in three of the gospels, but only one mighty miracle outside the resurrection is recorded in all four gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, it happens right before our passage at the very beginning of John chapter 6. Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat, they go across the Sea of Galilee, they land, and when they get there, a large crowd gathers. How large is it? It's about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Most believe, a conservative estimate, it's 20,000 individuals. What makes us so remarkable is if you look at the geography of where Jesus is and you take into account the population of the various villages that that are dotted along that seashore, You can't add 20,000 people in the first century from that area. So people, what that means is that people were coming not just from that geographical area, but all over the region because everybody wanted to hear from Jesus. Everybody wanted a piece of the action. Everybody wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. So all day long, Jesus taught them and he healed them. They were sick, he healed them. They were sick. He healed them. They had an upper respiratory infection. He healed them. He healed them. And he taught them. 
He gave them his word. He preached. He gave lessons. He taught them as he healed them. He healed them not only physically but also spiritually. It got to the end of the day and somebody had the wise idea, let's just send everybody home. Sounds like a great plan, except if you send 20,000 people to the various marketplaces that are there, there's not enough food in those marketplaces to feed 20,000 hungry individuals. So Jesus says, boys, while that's a good idea, it's not very practical. Hey, Philip, you give them something to eat. Philip looked at the crowd and he said, eight months of wages wouldn't be enough to give everybody one morsel of bread. Andrew heard the question, sprung into action. And somehow, someway, he nabbed the lunch of a young boy. I think he just stole it. I think he just said, hey, Jesus needs this, it's mine. And he takes the lunch. He brings it up to Jesus. And when he opens up the, um, you know, first century lunchbox, when he opens it up, there are five loaves of bread and two fish. On the one hand, we applaud this boy's mama. She's the only responsible one in the crowd who had the forethought, we're going to be gone a long time and I better pack a lunch for my son. But as soon as we applaud her, we criticize her, don't we? We think to ourselves, goodness gracious woman, why would you give your boy five loaves of bread for lunch? I mean, if that's what he normally eats, his plumbing's going to be stopped up for days. Oh, and then we realize it's not five loaves of bread. It's five crackers. And the two fish, they're not uh, eight to ten pound groupers any. They're a couple of sardines. It's a meager lunch from a meager boy given in the hands of Jesus. It's a meager lunch from a meager individual placed in the hands of Jesus. And somehow Jesus can use that little bit that we give him. A little bit of trust, a little bit of resources, a little bit of belief. He can use it in his hands. He took it and he blessed it and he multiplied it, gave it to the disciples. The disciples sat the crowd down in groups of 50 and hundreds and they ate till their hearts were content. What was left over were 12 baskets of food. There are 12 disciples. The baskets, they're, they're not uh, large five-gallon buckets. They're, they're little wicker baskets. Uh, it's... Uh, it's a man purse. It's what the disciples had as their pouch. And, and so that's what they were feeding people out of. And when they gathered up what was left, 12 baskets, one basket for each disciple. What does that mean? That means that Jesus did not waste one bite of food. He was the one who sustained. He's also the one who satisfies he satisfied them completely so that everybody said, this is great, wonderful. We, we don't even want for anything more until the next day. Because you know the funny thing about eating, you can be stuffed at night. And then the next day when you wake up, what happens? Your tummy starts rumbling again. You get hungry again, and you got to eat all. You got to eat, eat again. And so that's what happened. The next day, they woke up. They were hungry, and they came back for Jesus. This time, Jesus says to them, "The only reason you're here is because you want to get your bellies filled." And then Jesus begins into this teaching about how I am the bread of life. He wants them to know that he is the one who sustains. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who saves. That, that what he gives is salvation. Not just the meeting of physical needs, but the meeting of ultimate spiritual needs. 
In so many words, what he says to the crowd in the previous passage is, I am so much more than socialized medicine and a free meal ticket. Jesus is saying to the crowd, I am more than just a hospital and a soup kitchen. The only reason you're here is because you have some other sick people that you want me to heal and you want some more food to put into your belly. Jesus says, you are missing the point. I am the bread of life. Not just the bread of today or the bread of tomorrow or the bread that might be sustained till next week. I am the bread of eternal life. I'm the one who sustains. I'm the one who satisfies. I am the one who saves. In our passage, on a couple of occasions, Jesus speaks about this salvation that he gives. It's not just life, but it's eternal life so that he will raise us up at the last day. We will be with him both now and forevermore. We have nothing to fear because Jesus has the power over everything in this world. Once again, that's a good word for us today. We have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. In the midst of chaos and catastrophe, you have nothing to fear. Yes, we have to be wise. Yes, we have to be prudent. But we do not need to be fearful because Jesus is the bread of life. He sustains us. He satisfies us completely. And he saves us eternally so that he says, I will raise you up on that last day. You have nothing to fear, not even death. And what's the fear that's being permeated through our culture and our globe today? The fear that we're going to die. The reality is, at some point, we all will. But as believers in Christ... We have the bread of life that sustains us in this world and the one to come. Saves us, raises us up at the last day. So what does it look like for you to believe that Jesus is the bread of life? It's the the cancer patient who copes with chemotherapy by singing the songs of the faith. That person knows that Jesus is the bread of life. It's the mom and dad who as their five-year-old boy is being wheeled into surgery, they do not fear, not because of their trust in the earthly doctor, but because of their trust in the heavenly physician. Oh, that mom and dad, they know that Jesus is the bread of life. It's that believing woman who, in the midst of all the chaos, she still prays for her husband every day, and she prays for her children every day. You ask that woman, and she knows that Jesus is the bread of life. It's the middle-aged man who's still unemployed. And yet, he's doing everything he can, and he's trusting Jesus all the way. That man knows that Jesus is the bread of life. It's the, it's the person in their twilight years, and, and they're not fearing death. They're not fearing what the future holds because they know the one who holds the future in his hands. That person knows that Jesus is the bread of life. It's the person today who's a believer in Jesus, and they live somewhere between hysteria and ignorance. Friend, that's where I'm trying to navigate my life. I'm trying to live somewhere between the sky is falling and sticking my head in the sand. I mean, I've got to be wise. I've got to listen to the experts. I've got to heed their words of encouragement and and their instructions. I've got to trust them at some level, and you do too. And I've got to live and navigate between hysteria and ignorance. And somehow living in that mean, in in that way to say, Jesus, I I trust you. 
I trust you because you are my bread of life. You're the one who sustains me. You're the one who satisfies me. You're the one who saves me now and forevermore. We have nothing to fear, friends. God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. And I just, I just have a hopeful, holy hunch that God is going to use this for a global revival. I really just came just to remind you something that you know quite well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. You know what St. Patrick said? This was his prayer. His prayer was, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me, Christ in front of me, Christ behind me, Christ when I sit, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I rise. May Christ be on the lips of all who hear me. May Christ be on the ears of of. Uh, uh, on the ears of all who hear me. May Christ be on the lips of all who speak of me. May Christ be in the eyes of all who see me. Christ and Christ alone. That's my prayer for me, for you. Let it be Christ that others hear from us and see from us. And when they look upon you and look upon me, they see Christ who is the bread of life. My faith it's found a resting place. It's not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I, I need no other plea. It really is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. Amen. So our faith is squarely in the reality that Jesus is the bread of life. Even with that being said, there may be somebody here who's never trusted Jesus as bread of life. Maybe you just kind of stumbled and staggered into the church house today. You don't really know why you're here, but you know that, that you really don't trust Jesus. You've never called on his name. Today could be the day of your salvation. All you have to do is confess your sins and believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And you can go from no faith to faith. But I have a... Uh, just a suspicion that most of you are believers in Christ. That's why you're here today of all days. And maybe even as a believer, there are moments when you struggle. I get it. Maybe you've struggled in these past few days. I understand. But this Jesus who's the bread of life, he came just to give you the peace that passes all understanding. It'll guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He came to give you hope when there's a bunch of hopelessness. He came to give you help when there's a bunch of helplessness. He came to sustain you, to satisfy you, to save you. And maybe there's some this morning who just, that's just a good word just to be reminded of. 
And maybe you want to come once again as we sing and you want to kneel and pray. Maybe you need to pray at your seat. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do in this moment, you do it. But friends, let's use this time, not just the invitation time, but the days ahead. Use this time for the church to be the church. For we are people that point individuals to the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, When it comes to evangelism, it was D.T. Niles who simply said evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And all I am is a beggar telling you that Jesus is the bread of life and he satisfies. So let's use these days, these moments, to be a beggar telling another beggar where to find the real bread of life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your identity. Thank you for your divinity. Lord Jesus, thank you that you always knew who you were and you came to communicate that clearly to us. So now, Lord, we pray that as we uh, come to you in this moment, this moment of questions and chaos and this moment of sickness and this moment of confusion, oh, Father, help us to have an unwavering confidence in Christ that you are the one who will sustain us. You've sustained us in the past. You're not going to stop now. So we give you this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name.